All right, hi everyone. My name is Veda Carlson Heil, and today I'm just going to be doing um, a little reflection on the class Disarming Injustice um, that's given at Elon University. I took it this last J term, and um, we're sort of just the overall question that I'm going to be addressing in this podcast is we're going to be talking a lot with um, the last chapter in the 1619 project and sort of the big question of how can we move forward as a country um, given um, these considerations. So um, first I'm going to be talking about can the United States come to accept the truth about the past and move toward reconciliation? Why or why not? So I feel like we as a country are never fully going to be able to be fully united in our belief for racial justice. I think there's always going to be a counterpart um, to that movement. And it's sort of just whether that counterpart is where they are in society. Are they in higher up positions? Are they, you know, majority citizens? You, you know what I mean? So um, it, it's just a matter of, of where that counterpart is and how much hold they have on this country. Um, this can be seen in the past, uh, given the layout of the Legacy Museum. We saw that there was um, the Reconstruction period and then followed by racial terrorism out of fear of that Reconstruction. Um, this is also talked about on page 462 in the last chapter, Justice in the 1619 Project, when it says, uh, Black men serving in the U.S. Congress for the first time in history pushed for reparations in the form of federal aid for black schools. By the dot, dot, dot. Oh, well, by the late 1800s, Reconstruction had been abandoned and violently concluded, and many formerly enslaved people, dot, 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 were struggling in poverty, often were without even enough money to bury their dead. Um, so you can see that that Reconstruction period of liberation and enlightenment was followed by a lot of dark cruel things. And then this can be seen in the present, um, given the George Floyd era of 2020 that led to protests all around the country and the police officer, Derek Chauvin, getting charged on all four counts. Um, and that was a large victory for uh, the modern civil rights movement. And um, then it was followed by a counter movement and Trump actually ended up, this is found on page 455 um, in the chapter Justice in the 1619 Project. And it says that the number of voters supporting Trump, a white nationalist president, increased when he ran for a second term as an effect of these protests. And then those, as we know, after the election, those Trump supporters um, led the insurrection. So those are, it's really parallel seeing what happened in the past with reconstruction and racial terrorism versus what's happening now from the George Floyd movement. And then the like overbearing amount of white supremacists that uh, came out of their homes after that. So it's sort of just like the instability that comes with change. You know, we see there's change happening people start feeling unstable because there's change happening and it provokes some sort of fear in them, a fear of losing something, whether it be social status, power or money. Um, 
that, you know, provokes them from lashing out like this, which causes, you know, racial terrorism, the insurrection, and white supremacist groups. So <clears throat> to bring it back to the question of can the United States, you know, come to accept the truth? Logistically, yes. Like, we have the means for reparation, and we can move forward to reconciliate these, you know, hard truths that we have to bear. Um, this is found on page 473 of the 1619 Project, and it talks about, I did not know this before reading this, but it talks about the allocations, how we allocate $5 million yearly to support Holocaust survivors. And in that instance, we weren't even, we weren't the main oppressors of the Holocaust, you know, but we as a country were the main oppressors of slavery and we do nothing to repair that. Um, so it really just comes down to if we can accept the truth, if we can put down as a country our facade that the U.S. is perfect and accept that we aren't, and we actually have a long ways to go. Um, and I think this can be done. It's just a matter, I think there's still always going to be a counterpart to this kind of movement. It's just whether that counterpart is in a position to make, you know, really horrible uh, change as it has done in the past. So how can this country make amends for the legacy of slavery, theft, violence, terror, and mass incarceration? Um, my first thought was to avoid the delay until death tactic which is talked about on page 474 and pretty much what it is is it's um it's just waiting it's not it's so there are there are living victims of racial apartheid and terrorism who are born in this country and they um like the whole argument is that they just won't do anything until these people die out and then the argument will be, well, we don't have to do anything to, you know, reconciliate them and, you know, give our respects to them because they're dead. Um, so it is to avoid that and start by actually listening to those victims and seeing, understanding the ways that we can help. Because if we were the other people on the end of the stick, how are we to say that this is what they need? We need to take that down, give our microphone to them and listen to what they have to say like how can we support them and how can we you know amend for this crucial legacy that our country has left on them we also need to do this by restoring the hard history but restoring it in a way that doesn't idolize it so the legacy museum did a really great job at doing this um they really took on a lot of really harsh topics um, like the lynching memorial and the community remembrance project. And I think these were both just really done in a way that um, didn't idolize it, not one bit. And, but it was very impactful, like to get the dirt, to see all of the dirt and know what it stands for. It was just, it was very impactful for me. And I can assume for every other person who had seen that. So doing more things such as, you know, the Community Remembrance Project and um, putting up memorials such as the lynching memorial is what we have to do. This is also seen 
through the Tuskegee Airmen Museum. Um, when we went to this museum, a couple of the areas talked about the hardships that the Tuskegee Airmen had faced. And on the flip side, it also talked about how they overcame that and how they are now being remembered. So finding that kind of balance again of the hard history and sort of now what is what is being done to uh, help that. So with both of these contrasted to the Capitol, where the Capitol is actually like romanticizing the U.S.'s hard history, um, the capital of Alabama, that is like something that is, I think, not balanced and way more for um, definitely one side or another. Um, I think the Legacy Museum and the Tuskegee Airmen Museum did a great job at highlighting both sides of it, you know, the hard history and now um, what we're doing to retribute that. But the Capitol just highlighted the hard history, but they highlighted it in a way that it was just romanticized and really accepted still. So just we need a I, in order to make amends for this crucial legacy that slavery, theft, violence, terror, and just mass incarceration has on our country, I feel that we need to have memorials and museums that recognize this part of our history everywhere. You know, it's it's not just a thing that was in the South. This happened everywhere, and this is instilled in every place that we walk in this country, you know? And so I think to put um, things up in unprecedented places or just places that you wouldn't have thought it would have, you know, been prevalent in that era and time there, remembering that and recognizing it. Um, we also need to remember the individuals. I, I think we need to remember the individuals that gave hope during the civil rights movement. You know, we need to understand that these movements didn't just wake up one day and bam, like these movements were made of individuals. And if it wasn't for the courage that those individuals had, it wouldn't have gotten as much traction as it had. Um, I saw this, this was really impactful for me, was the Rosa Parks Museum. Going there, I feel like I got a really clear um, understanding of the parallel, like the impact that she had. You know, she refused to get off of the bus. The Montgomery bus boycott happened. And then the integration of buses happened. It was just like a really clear, precise way when a protest turned into actual movements. And these kinds of victories are good to hold on to when in times, you know, like another one, well, okay, on times you feel discouraged, um, that change, you know, cannot persist. Sort of um, that feeling like for me when I was in Alabama, I was thinking, how could someone who really wants to enact change come down to a place like this? I would just feel so discouraged to do that. Um, but there there are moments like the Rosa Parks. And then another example of mine is the ANT4, um, who, because of their sit-in, ended up integrating the Woolworth company. And so it's just little victories like this that uh, people who are trying to enact change have to hold on to, but also recognize that there's a long way to go from that. 
but it is possible and you know you just have to keep on doing it persisting and having grit so is it possible to move toward a place of truth reconciliation reconciliation and healing for black americans so I think that acceptance and reconciliation will really persist when major federal establishments start to push forward reconciliation. It's not going to happen like the federal government has a hand in every every area of our society. And so when the federal government starts taking place and really starts putting this at the forefront of their agenda, then that is when, you know, America will move towards this place of truth, reconciliation, and healing that it has to go to. Um, So one example that came up that I was thinking, so like when you are young, you really have the influence of your household. It's really prevalent in shaping your beliefs. You know, a lot of generations, it's one belief after another. and or what one generation the beliefs are passed down through generation and so when that pattern breaks it's oftentimes where people find their voice and so where do people find their voice through education and the we all have our right to a public education so i think really you know honing in on this public education and making it a way like forming our curriculum to accept our hard history and break down these misconceptions you know and have these children understand that the racial gap is still persisting i think will really change and manifest itself into um prosperity We saw this in Amen. Um, Amen and the 1619 Project talks about this, but even like the misconception of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is seen to be this person who just ended slavery and was so, you know, pro-Black rights, and he just wanted them gone. He was pro-union. He just wanted the union to come together, but he didn't want, you know, Black citizens to have rights, to have freedom. He just wanted them to leave. Um, This is also seen on page 470 and 471. These different misconceptions that we hold because our public education system just hasn't done it justice, done this sector of our history justice, at least. Um, So this misconception that, one, racism is just like a natural thing that happens which is true because of the biases that are embedded in us at a really young age because of these systems and the systems don't change. So there's this misperception on page 470, the misperception of racial economic inequality found that most Americans believe that black households hold $90 in wealth for every 100 held by white households. The actual amount is $10. That seems like something I should have known when I was in high school. And if we can start actually recognizing this wealth gap in schools, then, you know, students will be more, um, more persistent in changing that and closing that gap. Uh, education is truly a thing that 
is going to help this. It also, on 471, it says Black college graduates are about as likely to be unemployed as white Americans with a high school diploma, and Black Americans with a college education hold less wealth than white Americans who have not even completed high school education. So it's just like misconceptions and that we need to break down in this. It is, I think truly, it's the key to the longevity change. You know, young people are going to be, like children are going to be leaders one day and the U.S. has to accept that it's not gonna happen overnight, but it has to start somewhere. And if we can start implementing and teaching kids like these things that I had just read off in their formative years, children will you know, also learn how to respect each other, no matter what their background is. And hopefully, you know, that will eliminate the bias in themselves and manifest in less racial bias as adults, um, which will then, you know, manifest in whatever they go, whatever system they end up in, will hopefully be less biased towards them. I, so yeah, but obviously, so that was my rant about public education. Um, but there are other federal programs that the book talked a lot about, specifically reparation. And I had actually never heard of this before reading about it in the justice chapter in the 1619 Project. Um, but, you know, other federal programs that are going to do our Black community, the U.S. Black community, justice. Like, it's it'll give them the best of the best. There's not going the best of the best. This is seen in our just or civil rights tour, um, the St. Jude City. The priest wanted to give them the best materials for their church, wanted to give, you know, black people the best materials for their church, and he wouldn't settle for anything less. And those are the kinds of programs and that kind of mindset that must be consistent through all of these programs. We can't be implementing programs that backhandedly provoke the discrimination of black individuals just as like the secretary of state had made a comment on the civil rights tour about how he wanted a person of color to answer the door of the capitol but he doesn't want them to hold the power to actually make decisions and be an equal to his level it's just like backhanded obviously that is you know a, a smaller it's just it's a comment but it's that kind of mindset and intention that manifests into you know programs that just can't be accepted if you are going to go with the reparation program make it the best of the best and make sure that it works and it's not just um continuing to continuing the cycle of racial discrimination so how would we start these reparations? Um, I didn't know that there was, you know, that it was, there were already things enacted to, or bills enacted that were um, <clears throat> pushing this policy forward. Um, this can really be seen as an overwhelming task, but it's actually quite simple. So how they would, um, in this bill called, how, how they would, decide whether or not someone was eligible for a reparation is they would so this is on 472 in justice in the 1619 project it says nor is it impossible to figure out who is eligible 
reparations would go to any person who has documentation that he or she identified as a black person for at least 10 years before the beginning of any reparations process and can trace at least one ancestor back to American slavery. Then on the next page, 473, it talks about the H.R. 40 bill, which is a bill that was introduced to Congress to um, pretty much start the discussion of reparations and um, and uh, promote this program in the federal government. And obviously we have the means, we're giving money to Holocaust survivors every year, so it's just a matter of getting individuals to support this. So yeah, it is possible to move towards this place of truth, reconciliation, and healing for Black Americans, but it's just a matter of are we going to teach people what has to be taught in order to motivate them to really care about issues like this, or are we just going to continue to avoid it, which I really hope we don't. That I know I'm not going to, but who knows what will what will happen in the next 20, 30 years. Um, only time will tell. So yeah, that's my take on um, this class, Disarming Injustice, our coursework, and the Civil Rights Tour. I hope you all enjoyed, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening.